encourage you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from verses 10 through 27 this morning. That's on page 49 if you need that help. Exodus 6. I think of Moses. Why, why did you ever send me, Lord? This is not working. This plan has backfired. Uh, that's what we heard last from Moses to the Lord in chapter 5. The Israelites remain enslaved. Things are harder than they were before. Um, so the Lord offers comfort and assurance through Moses uh, to the people that he is faithful to his covenant. He will redeem. He will deliver. Um, he just may not do this on their timeline or in the way that they're expecting. Although he's been quite clear to Moses how Pharaoh would respond uh, through this uh, process. But he will deliver. His name will be glorified. His, his name is his word when it comes to the covenant uh, Lord. So we're going to pick up in verse 10, and quite quickly after we get into these verses, we're going to run into a genealogy, and if you have a Bible reading program and you're working your way through, you get to the genealogy, you go, oh man, here we go. <laughs> Unfamiliar names, you know, I'm, why this interruption in the story, uh, this uh, genealogy here? Um, but because it is the holy word of God, we're going to uh, look at this. Every word is useful uh, for our instruction uh, and I think if we're willing to hear, uh, willing to hear with the ears of the ancient Israelites, then this may not seem so strange. It's actually not an interruption at all uh, to the story here. A very important type of uh, literature that Moses includes in the narratives. So as I read, uh, beginning at verse 10 going through here, you know, as we translate uh, into the English, we pronounce these the way that we know how in the English. I'm going to try and read these names how they might sound in the Hebrew, um, try being the operative word here. Um, but just to give you a sense, so you know, we're used to saying Aaron and Moses. Uh, in the Hebrew, it would be Aaron and Moshe, if you were listening to those uh, names. So here's how those names might sound as we, uh, as we read this, just as, as an idea. So beginning in verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Ruvain, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Ruvain, the sons of Simon, Hemuel, Hamin, Ohud, Hakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohat, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi by their clans, the sons of Kehat, Emram, Itzar, Hivran, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohat being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Shochebed, his father's sisters, sister, 
and she bore him Aaron and Moshe, the year of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Itzhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Aziel, Mishael, El-Safan, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadav, Avihu, El-Azar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, El-Khanah, and Aviasaf. These are the clans of the Korites. El-Azar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Every word, every name. Uh, good for our instruction. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word, for its power, its authority in our lives. You are working your word to perform it in these very moments. Lord, make us receptive. Give us ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand and apply uh, this word to our lives. Lord, give your servant strength. Block out that which is said, which is unhelpful, untrue. Uh, be glorified uh, as we come under your word in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it was a, it was a great adventure for uh, Jay Miskovich. Uh, maybe you've heard of Jay or have um, read about him in a magazine in the last year or two, but he's one of these treasure hunters who claimed that he had found uh, the sunken treasure off of a Spanish ship that had, had sank in 1622 off of the Florida Keys. And uh, that particular area is very well known for treasure hunters and those who like to go diving and uh, because of all the ships that have been wrecked there over the years. But Jay came back with these different emeralds and said There's, they're just scattered all over around this, uh, around this particular wreckage. And so he took advice from his partners, uh, lawyers. He had jewel experts come together. Um, collected millions of dollars in private investments. Um, somebody at a, a Wall Street manager even set up another company to oversee uh, the amount of wealth. Uh, so plenty of folks who wanted, as you can imagine, an estimate of billions of dollars were going to get in on this. Um, but then things started to surface. Uh, some, some unaccountable findings, uh, some discrepancies, in some of these gems, uh, one a jeweler in Belgium was examining and, and saw, found an epoxy that certainly couldn't have been from 1622. And uh, so investors began to back out. And it wasn't long before it came to the surface that this whole thing was made up. Um, that Jay had taken these emeralds, purchased them themselves, and, and dropped them in the ocean for folks to find. Um, or just you know, to be proof of this. He wanted to draw out the treasure hunters, which he did. Um, but it left him uh, really with just a lot of burned bridges and distrust. Um, you know, what, what, what level of confidence, who, who do we place our trust in? Um, why do we place our trust in them? When can we have that level of confidence, as so many of these investors did, um, that this is no mistake, this is no cover-up, this is actually the real deal? Um, I'm enjoying a casual, ongoing conversation with a brother about 
um, how we approach and investigate the topic of origins, um, you know, the age of the earth and creation and so forth. Wanting to be faithful to the scriptures, um, honest with what we can observe in creation. What, what can we learn? What are we intended to learn uh, from these sources? And you can't go very far in the conversation before you have to ask the question, who do we trust? And why do we trust them? Um, what inclines us to believe their argument over another? Um, and there, there are places that we start in order to do this, to make this determination. You can look back at a person's history. Uh, you can look back at their education. Um, maybe their publications, the experiences that they've had to shape their, their lives. Um, that can provide some of this much-needed credibility. And that's what we find here in a genealogy um, inserted here in chapter 6. It places that credibility, that authenticity on Moses and Aaron uh, as the leaders of God's people. Uh, it's not made up. They're not looking for a good story. These men, are, they have the pedigree to be in the position that they're in. And it would, uh, you know, reminds the, the original audience, uh, reminds us today, too, of just some important aspects of the larger story of redemption when we go through a genealogy uh, like this. Because um, really, we're going we're gonna to pick up the story right where we, we leave off, verses uh, 28 through 30. And this is, is put in there, um, sandwiched between those verses. So our focus is going to be to look at the genealogy, the very spot of the genealogy, um, the selection within the genealogy. It's not a comprehensive um, list. And then the Savior that emerges from the genealogy. Um, I don't know if you've looked into one of these new record players. Um, they, they play the 12-inch the LPs. I think they're coming back now. Um, maybe the technology is a little bit better where if you bump them, they won't skip as much. But if that needle skips, then you know, all you hear is a, a broken record, record, record. Um, and I think that's what we're, we're hearing uh, from Moses here. We're getting that broken record vibe uh, in verses 10 through 12. Um, it's the same story we've heard before. Lord, I, I'm not the guy. I'm not qualified uh, for this task. Um, and several of the uh, modern translations record Moses as having just a clumsiness or a faltering of speech. Uh, but the language, and we read this in the ESV, is actually of uncircumcised lips, um, which sounds painful and weird. Um, but for the Israelites, this, this figurative language makes good sense. If, if there was something that was considered to be of no use of God, uh, or things that... Um, were unacceptable, then those things would be uncircumcised. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah uses this language. And he talk about, talks about the, the heart. Uh, he says the uncircumcised ear that cannot listen. Uh, so for Moses, his speech would be, well, unacceptable. Um, but I want us to, to consider where it is we have heard about circumcision and Moses together here in Exodus. And we've read about it once. It's back in chapter 4, where Moses' life is in danger because one of his sons is not circumcised. And so, if that's such a big deal, if God is willing to, 
see him die for not having one of his sons circumcised, then maybe he'd be willing to dismiss Moses as a spokesman if his lips were uncircumcised. It's a decent argument, maybe for Moses. Of course, we could say, nice try, Moses. Um, however, however we look at that, Moses wanted out. God would have none of this. Uh, he gives the same charge to Moses and Aaron uh, before we get into this genealogy. But what a good spot for a genealogy. Um, in this culture, the ancient Israelites, the genealogy is, is a welcomed literary tool um, in which to understand the story. Uh, it helps to confirm and authenticate Moses and Aaron as spokesmen, uh, the very thing that Moses is um, fighting against um, in Israel's history. Um, I think it's doing something else as well. It's really helping to reassure the people. You know, at this point in the narrative, when, when Moses is, is not very assured, having this genealogy and taking a look at this history uh, would be very reassuring. Um, so the spot of the genealogy and what's included in it is very specific. Uh, it helps to confirm the, the, the accuracy of the biblical account. We gain insights into the character of God, his relationship with his people, and the plan of salvation. So often genealogies are as much or more so theologically instructive as they are historically uh, instructive. We get some of those points here. In fact, uh, Dr. Phil Reichen, he shares of experience, a Western missionary who went to share the gospel with a group of natives, and he, he went repeatedly, and there was no response to the gospel, at least nothing that he could, he could tell. And then he decided to translate a genealogy that, that went back to Adam. And it was after that that the natives said, now, now we know that this Bible is true. Um, we recite the names of our ancestors within the tribe, but we had forgotten the beginning. And so through that genealogy... Um, they then repent and, and put their faith in Christ. So genealogies can save. That's the power of God's Word uh, in doing this. Significant um, places. Um, so we see that the spot is significant, that the grounds of the events of Exodus, it really grounds the events in the past as well as what is to come in the future. Uh, the people are going to understand uh, how the events of the Exodus develop uh, then they need to make this connection uh, with the past. Um, I think this is what makes our history, specifically church history, uh, so important for us to consider. Um, we need to understand our connection to the past in order to fully embrace and live faithfully in the present. Um, so ample reason here to, to learn your church history. Uh, be sensitive to the history of a church, a particular uh, church um, as the body of Christ. Um, knowing our history really can help us avoid a lot of pitfalls in our walk with the Lord, uh, certainly true individually, but um, as well as a church family. You know, where do we struggle? What might we need to, to look at or repent of as a church in order to move forward, to move in a particular uh, direction? There's a few other reasons for knowing a bit of church history whether you're history buff or not, let me give you just a few. Um, I appreciate David uh, Roach's insights here. It says, church history confirms the promises of Scripture and 
comforts believers in times of trial, times of struggle. It's encouraging for us when we learn about those who've gone before us, when we learn of their experiences and how they've persevered in the faith. It helps us counter heresies, cultic teachings around us. Maybe we have an opportunity to speak with someone who's a Muslim or those part of the Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door. I know there's a few of those kingdom halls uh, in this area. And so when they claim or deny the deity of Christ, well then if you know some church history, you can talk to them about how those, that uh, has been talked about in ecumenical councils in the past. Um, knowing church history, it helps us interpret our Bibles. What, what's been the consistent orthodox interpretation of this passage throughout the years? Uh, very, very helpful. Uh, placing those fences around our reading of the Bible before we just jump off and say, how does this uh, apply. Um, one more, it, it gives us our own spiritual genealogy. You know, it's fun for us to look at our physical uh, genealogies, our physical ancestors. Why not take an interest in our spiritual ancestors um, as we make together? So certainly more reasons to understand uh, the history of the church. But genealogies like this are, as, as Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. In righteousness, an important spot uh, here in Exodus. We find it to be quite selective, not a comprehensive genealogy, but selected descendants of Levi, or Levi, as you heard in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, it starts with, these are the heads of the father's houses. So all the descendants you know, living under the spiritual authority of this, of this uh, man, of that house. Uh, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, but, but God holds... Fathers primarily responsible for the leading and the spiritual well-being of their families, encouraging their wives, um, teaching their children. Remember in that time of covenant renewal, in Joshua chapter 24, this, Joshua says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, again, I, we need to remember, this is God's purpose, God's good design uh, to extend His grace through families. Um, that's his, his ordinary uh, means. It doesn't always happen that way. Um, not all children of believers remain faithful to the covenant. Um, being born into a Christian home certainly is a wonderful privilege and a gift of God's grace, but in no way guarantees uh, a life of faithfulness um, and eternal security. Um, you know, some of you may be the the first or one of a few in your family who have come to know Christ and submit to His uh, Lordship. That's the beauty and the power of the Gospel. Um, it can transform, capture hearts in any context. Um, we see God's faithfulness through the generations. And the point of this genealogy is to get to Levi and his generations. But the appropriate form in the genealogy is you start with the firstborn. So we're going all the way back to Jacob and that first generation in Israel uh, to settle in Egypt. And Jacob's firstborn is Reuben, uh, followed by Simeon. So it stops at the second generation uh, for each of these men. But Moses and Aaron are not a part of those clans. So that's why they don't, uh, they don't continue there. Uh, instead, going to uh, Levi uh, and Koath. Um, 
That's why we see the ages that we do, why there's an, an age for Kohath, because Aaron and Moses are in that line. Their dad, Amram, as mentioned for the first time here, um, and it's very possible that we have the, the same Amram mentioned in verse 20 as we have in verse 18, but it's also possible this is not the case. Names were often reused. Um, and uh, and that, that's, that's pretty significant as we consider just the number of years that have gone on, uh, 430 years since the people of Israel uh, were taken, uh, were uh, enslaved in Egypt. Um, we also know from the book of Numbers that there are thousands of Levites by this time, over 22,000 sons of Levi by the time Israel gets to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. So, so it's possible that Aaron and Moses are the great-grandson of, um, of uh, Levi, but it's also possible that uh, there's some, many generations that are left out there. Um, but with all these generations, these names are selected, of the ones that could be chosen, uh, to get the people of Israel thinking about their history, what God has done uh, through these names. The Levites, we know, would be set apart for service. They're the ones that cared for the tabernacle. And we learn in Numbers that the house of Levi had unique responsibilities. Gershon, the sons of Gershon, they were in charge of the curtains. The Kohathites were in charge of the furnishings and the utensils. The sons of Merari, they're the ones that did the heavy lifting, the frames and the pillars and the bases. So this ordinary, very ordinary yet very necessary work in the life of the people, in the worship of the people. Uh, that is part of Aaron's ancestry. Uh, that's part of his uh, family history. Uh, certainly nothing to sneeze at. The psalmist uh, proclaims, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Uh, how significant the tribe of, of Levi. And then Moses, again under the inspiration of the Spirit, mentions... Uh, Aaron's most well-known grandson, Phineas. Remember Phineas? The time that you spent reading Numbers. He plays a major role in ending the idolatry and the sexual immorality uh, among the people um, and, uh, with, between Israel and the Moabites. He has a great zeal for the Lord, a passion um, for the Lord's uh, holiness. And we see his, his faith in action uh, as he um, pronounces or uh, gives the Lord's judgment um, recounting in Psalm 106, it says, They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out, broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Uh, this would be a good example of faith and action in Phineas. Uh, but not all of Aaron's family are good examples of uh, Faithfulness, and there's a few examples here, prominent ones that are not. Korah, Korah would be a cousin to Moses and Aaron. He's the one that leads the rebellion in the wilderness against Moses. And so the genealogy here tells us where he gets that claim to authority, that claim to leadership. Um, rather than being content with that as cousin, you know, Moses is getting all the attention. Everybody's listening to him. Well, why just him? I'm in that same line. Um, yeah, he leads that rebellion, and he, uh, he doesn't have the reputation that maybe he desires, but he does have a reputation as the one whom the earth swallows in all of his family. Um, 
There's another, a good tangent application for us. Here, here's a warning to the people um, that they wouldn't fall into that same type of sin. Uh, looking to, to elevate themselves, seeking recognition, um, seeking this uh, high position. Um, I think it may be, maybe Korah is one of the examples that Paul has in mind among many others in Israel. And he writes to the Corinthian church. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Or grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Sometimes, sometimes we resent, as Korah did, we resent the spiritual leaders that God has given to us. Um, as broken and fallible as they are, we think, you know, who, who are they? Um, you know, I, I can do a better job than this. Um, and in a time when the goal and the highest praise is to be our own authority, then this is a strong temptation. Um, I appreciate the comments of Francis Schaeffer on seeking a high position. He said the word extrude is important here. To be extruded is to be forced out under pressure into desired shape. Picture a huge press jamming soft metal at high pressure through a die so that the metal comes out in a certain shape. This is the way of the Christian. He or she should choose the lesser place until God extrudes him into a position of more responsibility and authority. So let God extrude you. Uh, don't follow the way of Korah. We also read of uh, Nadab and Abihu, or Nadav, Avahu. Um, these sons of Aaron decide to try a little experiment uh, in worship in the tabernacle. Um, and it's, it is God who decides how he is to be worshipped. Um, and today we refer often referred to this as the regulative principle. God is the one who regulates our worship. And Nadab and Abihu decide that they're going to test this in Leviticus chapter 10. The Lord strikes them down, consumes them by fire, uh, right there in the tabernacle, and they have to be dragged out. Uh, so we have to worship God with reverence and awe, um, taking seriously uh, what He's given to us in His Word as a guide uh, for our worship. Uh, so selection here helps us in understanding God's working, His plan for salvation for His people, a named people. I want us to just sit there for a second. The God of all creation, the covenant Lord, He's not just generally saving a people. He is saving people uniquely. He has a, a personal, intimate relationship with all those that He's brought into His family. Through specific names, specific events, we see God's concern and His interest in ordinary people, just like you, just like me. Um, and we really think about that. Most people in this world do not know that you exist. Um, but God knows. Um, and quite frankly, that's all that matters. If God knows you, and you are His. Um, to be known and loved of God 
in the Lord Jesus. That is, um, you know, Paul, Paul exhorts Timothy. He says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Specifically, by name, uh, he knows you. So the point of the genealogy, it's made clear in 26 and 27. These are the guys, these are the ones God has chosen uh, to lead the people out of Egypt. And I thought Chevy captured this idea pretty well in their advertising uh, a little while back. Um, The Silverado comes uh, tearing into the driveway, the horn is honking, the lights are flashing, and the couple comes out the door and says, what, Tommy's trapped in a cave? And so he jumps into the Chevy Silverado and brings them to, to rescue the boy. And then again, the next scene, the, the truck comes in honking and flashing lights and, and what, Tommy's caught in a well? And so they jump in, they go save Tommy. And it just keeps going through these scenes. How did he get an, a hot air balloon anyway as the truck is pulling him to freedom, to safety? And uh, I didn't know this town had a volcano. And how do you get stuck in the belly of a whale? But each time, the truck is there. The Savior Silverado taking Dad to every spot. Now, not just any truck, this truck uh, will do that, right? Um, so God would deliver his people. He would do the saving, but not through a specific truck, through specific men. Um, these men together are the savior from this genealogy. So three times it's emphasized. Uh, listen, pay attention, follow them. Uh, these are the guys. Uh, so we hear the significance of the spot, the selection of names in this genealogy. Consider, you know, what if your name was in a biblical genealogy? You know, what would folks say? Um, we've already mentioned that you know, we won't be remembered uh, for very long. So what, what does God say about your name? Um, is your name written in His book of life? Um, do you belong to Him by faith? There's two other names in this genealogy, Aminadab and Nashon in verse 23. Uh, These men are actually in the ancestral line of David. Uh, Both of these names are included in another genealogy that we find in Matthew chapter 1, as well as Luke chapter 3. Matthew 1 is a genealogy of another prophet and priest, we hear Moses and Aaron, or prophet and priest, but not just any prophet and priest, the great high priest and prophet and king of God's people. This is the one. It's this Jesus that was born of Mary. We learn from this genealogy. This Jesus of which the angels sang. This Jesus that was found listening to the rabbis at the temple. This Jesus that performed miracles. This Jesus that existed before Abraham was. This Jesus who offered his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This Jesus that rose from the grave, defeating death forever. He's he's the one to pay attention to. He's the Savior from the genealogy we find there in the New Testament. Um, Do you think genealogies are important? Do you think they have significance? Um, It's a specific name of Jesus that is the name above all names. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The only way out of our slavery to sin is to follow Christ, to trust Him. It was this Moses and Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh, would bring the people 
out of Egypt. It is this Jesus who speaks to our heart by the Spirit of truth, delivers us to a land of promise. So we really do see the hand of God in these genealogies. I hope you've seen some of that. Um, He's working in history for us, working in history through us. Um, So let's let's make good use of the history that he's given to us, which we at least know includes today. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of history. We acknowledge your work through some of these names that we've looked at this morning, your work through our own heritage. Lord, we are in awe that you would know us by name, that you would work through us individually and as your people in this place. Lord, we thank you for this trust, the confidence that this builds as we look at your work throughout redemptive history. Um, Lord, may, it, may we see the, the authentication in the, um, that has been placed upon Christ. Um, he too, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, um, our one true king. It's his name that we pray. Amen.